Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from January 23rd by Pastor Randy, titled, Nehemiah, Build Back Your Faith, Part 2. Uh, so last week, we said before revival can come, that there has to be some mourning over the way things are. Before you can rebuild a wall, you have to be able to weep over the ruins. And our culture has lost its ability to weep. When was the last time that you were broken and you mourned over the sins in your own life? When was the last time you mourned and were broken over the sins that's going on in our culture? And those two things go together. You can't be upset over what's going on in our culture and not be upset what's going on in your own life. Remember we talked about that principle of representation last week. They go together. But what we do is we look at our own lives and we go, I don't have a problem. And we look at culture and go, that's their problem. We look at our own lives and we think, I'm doing okay, not a big deal. We look at culture and we see what's going on in our culture. We get angry. We don't get broken. We, we, we get upset over, the, over what they're doing. We, we actually can get angry over that. And then, not only are we not broken about the sins in our own lives, we're not broken about the sin in our culture, we're not broken over the fact that because of the behavior of Christians, our culture mocks God. They look at the Christians in the culture and they see what they've done, they, especially some of those that's made the headlines, and they go, ha, huh, they're supposed to be Christians. And look what they're doing. Until we're able to be broken, to be mourning over the sins in our own life, over the sins of our culture, and over what we as Christians have done to allow the world to mock the name of the God, we're not of our God, we're not gonna see revival. You can just forget it. It all begins there. It has to start there. It's that brokenness, that, that, that mourning, that's what leads to, to the fasting and praying, that's what leads to what all, everything that God does next. You've got to have that desperation. Back in, I think it was 2010, you remember those 33 Chilean miners that were stuck underground for 69 days? On top of them was a rock twice the size of the Empire State Building. They knew the hope of rescue was very slim, if at all. So down that little cavern where they were at, they began to talk about their lives, their decisions, their regrets, and what would happen after they died. They knew one of their guys by the name of Jose Enriquez that he was a Christian. So he said, will you pray for us? He said, yes. So he had them kneel down and, and from the book, this is the prayer that he prayed. He said, we aren't the best men, but Lord have pity on us. We are sinners. We need you. There's nothing we can humanly do without your help. We need you to take charge of the situation. That's the definition of desperation. And then the guys go, okay, what do we do now? And Jose says, you need to start confessing your sins out loud. 
So one guy confesses his alcoholism and how that's torn apart his family. Another one confesses uh, his anger issues and what that's done to affect uh, those around him. Another one confesses that he hasn't been a good father to his daughter and he just keeps going on and on and on. The next day and for the following days was the same. Jose would, would get up and he would preach a little bit. They would pray, they would confess their sins and they would worship. So while revival is breaking out underground, up on top is this massive rescue effort that's going on. And they managed to drill this little hole down to the cavern where they're at. It's not very big, but it's enough where they can get food and water, newspapers and things like that. And the guys stuck underground, they begin to think, hey, we just might survive this. And we might even be sort of famous in the process. And so their desperation fades away. And when a desperation fades away, so does the prayer, so does the confession, so does the worship. Now, it's great news that they're going to be rescued, but it's really sort of sad that those embers of revival that were starting out begin to fade away. There is something that I only know to call a gift of desperation. That when we have it, it enables us to experience God, to, to, to be in his presence, it enables us to, to, to be in touch with God in ways that, that's never happened before, to understand in, or to be in his presence in ways we never even felt possible before. See, it's in when you're, when you're desperate because of your fear that you can experience a peace that passes all understanding. It's when you're desperate because you're so weak, then you experience his power in your life. It's in your desperation where you're overcome with guilt and shame that you experience his forgiveness and his acceptance. It's when it's when you learn that his grace is sufficient in those moments of desperation that you discover that because of his grace, you can not only be in difficult circumstances and survive, but you can even thrive in the midst of that. And right now, our culture's in a bad place. We got masses amounts of people addicted to porn. Divorce is rampant. We have girls that are just so codependent, they just go from relationship to relationship to relationship. Christianity is being kicked to the curb. And what do we do? We say, well, that's just the way it is. There's nothing I can do about it. And basically what we've done is we just become used to the brokenness. There's no sense of desperation. We've just gotten used to the brokenness. Here's what we said. If we're going to see revival, we need the gift of desperation. So this is what we're going to do today. Before we move on to Nehemiah, before we go to chapter two next week, I want us to stop and let's look at what was behind Nehemiah's four and a half months of prayer and fasting. What really began it all? And the starting point of them experiencing this revival was this gift of desperation. 
And so I want us to, to get a hold of that this week before we move on because everything starts there. And if you don't start there, you don't see the walls rebuilt. You don't see the people rebuilt. It all begins at this point. This is what leads Nehemiah to that four and a half months of prayer and fasting. So we're going to look today at a, at a couple of instances of, of, of desperation. Because when you look through scripture, you see that God is drawn to desperation. So we're going to look at, at two cases today. Number one starts in Samuel. It's about a woman named Han Hannah. Let's read this. There is a man from Ramathon Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Try saying all that real fast. See how it goes for you. Okay, he had two wives. The first name Hannah and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had, no, had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorstep of the Lord's temple. Okay, we're going to stop right there. So Hannah is struggling with fertility. And in that day, we know that, that a woman couldn't bear children, that, that they were saw as being cursed by God, that they had done something that God was punishing them for. And on top of that, you got Peninnah who taunts her to the point of where, where she goes into to tears and won't eat. And here's the troubling thing about it. Here's the desperate part about this. It's not for a short time. This goes on year after year after year. You know, that, that's sort of the formula for desperation. You know, pain plus time can equal desperation. It'd been okay if this had just been a, a year thing and had been over with. You can survive that, right? But that's what leads her to desperation. This goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop. Now, you've got to give kudos to her husband. He tries. Hey, am I not better you than 10 sons? Hannah, when you married me, you got the husband lottery. Come on. Isn't this enough? Looky here. You got to give him some credit. But Hannah knows, <coughs> excuse me, that he really doesn't understand. And then there's that phrase that I read that last verse where she got up and, and went to the priest, to, to, the, to the temple, the place of sacrifice. When it says she got up, that doesn't mean that's, that has to do with her posture. That she was sitting down, then she stood up. What that means is now she's ready to do something different. 
I am so desperate, I'm ready to try something different. And so this is what we need to understand. Uh, uh, verse, let's, let's do the 10, verse 10, 11. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. So she prays. Okay, God, I will give him back to you. Now we look at that at first and go, okay, she's sort of negotiating with God. God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. But you can't negotiate with God. You can't negotiate with someone who doesn't need anything from you. This is not a negotiation. This is time of surrender. She's saying, God, before I wanted a child for me, now I want a child for you. She surrenders at this point and says, now it's going to be all about you. Next we read in in uh, verse 18, may your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Now, what I want you to notice is God didn't come to her and say, okay, I'm going to give you a child. No. Her circumstances hasn't changed at all at this point, but her heart has changed. She's become completely surrendered. God, I'm not asking for me anymore. I'm asking for you. Here's the thing. If we're going to see revival, we need to get to desperation, to pray and fast so that we surrender to God. That's what, we, that's what desperation does. It brings to the point where you're ready to surrender to God. Surrender your pride. Surrender your bitterness. Surrender your angry. Maybe even surrender the thing you want most in life. And say, God, it's not, no longer for me. Now it's for you. Oh, to bring us to that point. Our desperation can bring us to that point where we're surrendered. And then she goes back. She conceives, has a son, names him Samuel, which means ask of God or, or, uh, or, or heard by God. And then when he gets weaned, when he gets to the point, she surrendered him to God. God, he's yours. Desperation leading to the place of surrender and then seeing God and experiencing God in ways you never thought possible. Next, has to do in 1 Kings chapter 5. It's, uh, it's, it's a guy named Naaman. This is during the time of Elisha. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The, the man was a valiant warrior, but, his, but he had a skin disease. So Naaman is, is a general in the army of, of Aram, which is modern-day Syria, which is just right north of Israel. He's a very focused guy. Very determined guy, very driven guy. And being a general, he has all the wealth and prestige that comes along with that position. But one day he's getting dressed and he notices a little splotch on his skin. Not a big deal, just goes on without it. But then he gets some tingling in his fingers and his toes. 
and, and then he knows some more splotches of skin to, uh, to, to develop and he thinks leprosy. Now in our day, leprosy is very easily cured, but in that day, it meant total isolation. In that day, it was a death sentence. There was no coming back from it. So here's the, the first degree of desperation that we see in this story. The first degree of desperation, realizing you're completely helpless and powerless. That there's nothing you can do. You're up against a situation or a person you can't fix. Completely powerless. Maybe it's something that, that you try to keep hidden that, that you don't want anybody to know, but, but there's nothing you can do about it. See, the longer we refuse to be honest about our desperation, the longer we put off any hope for deliverance. Are we going to be a people who, who, are, who come and realize our desperation? So, Naaman is faced with this challenge. And here's what we read in, in the next two verses. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master were, with, were, were, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So here's this girl whose whole life has been uprooted because of Aram and his armies and, and it's probably this general. Now she's in the household, so she goes to Naaman's wife and says, hey, We have a guy back in our country who can heal him. So now Naaman has a decision to make. Is he going to listen to this slave girl talking about her God who he has just defeated, who his armies had defeated? Second degree of desperation. Are you desperate enough to listen to God the counsel of others? Huge challenge. Because this is when you reach the point where you discovered maybe you need to stop listening to you because you've been wrong a lot. Maybe it's time you need to listen to somebody else. Somebody else who you wouldn't even expect answers to come from. Are you willing to do that? Or are you going to reach the point when your pride, where, you, where you're willing are you willing to reach the point and put aside your pride where you're willing to accept godly counsel wherever it comes from? So Naaman, he decides he is going to go and, and see this prophet that his slave girl has been talking about. So he loads some resources and he pulls some strings. He goes to his boss who happens to be king and says, would you write a letter that says whoever reads this has to cure me of leprosy? He says, I sure will. So he writes a letter. If you know what's good for you, you will cure my man Naaman of leprosy. And then he gathers with him a bunch of silver and gold and he goes down to Israel. He goes to the king of Israel, gives him his letter. King of Israel says, cure him of leprosy. And remember, the king of Israel, his predecessor is, is the person who Aaron and one of his armies has killed. So he's kind of worried right now. Is this just an excuse to kill me too? He's worried about this. And so Elisha gets news of this encounter and he, he sends word back to, to the king, tell Naaman to come to me. 
And here's our third degree of desperation, a willingness to ask help for other to ask help from others. Because so many people get stuck and they don't want to really ask for help. They may admit they have a problem. They may listen to godly counsel, but they won't take the step where they ask for help. Their marriage is falling apart, but they don't ask for help. They're in debt, but they never ask for help. They think they can handle the situation in their addiction or whatever it may be, but they never ask for help. So Naaman now shows up to Elisha's front door and he's there with his entourage on his horse, looking the part of a general. He's got like $5 million of gold and silver with him. And Elisha takes one look and he realizes he's not coming in humility. So he sends a servant out. Tells the servant, look, go tell him to wash seven times in the Jordan River and he'll be cured. But here's what happens. But Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abna and Pephar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. And then one of his servants says to him, if he would have asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. If he'd have asked you to, to do some act of bravery, you would have done it. If he'd asked you to go conquer this nation, we'd be on our way to conquer that nation right now. But he just asked you to simply go dip in the Jordan River. Because see, he's angry on all these different levels. He's angry because Elisha wouldn't come out and speak to him himself. He's expecting Elisha to come out in some $2,000 suit, have his hair slicked back, to, to, to wave his hand over the place and say, in the name of the Lord, in about 10 different syllables. Some people can do that. They can say Lord in about 10 different syllables and, and to wave his hand over that and for him to be healed. And then it's that whole Jordan River thing because that's like a muddy little creek. So how we would describe it. So the servant says, look, if he'd asked you to do something difficult, you would have done it. Why not this? And now he has a decision to make. Now here's where we get to this fourth degree of desperation. Here's where we get where desperation needs to take every one of us to a readiness to obey God. Because see, there's a lot of people that understand they have a problem. There's a whole lot of people who are willing to accept counsel, who, who, are, who are willing to ask for help but there's very few people who are now willing to say, okay, God, I will do it your way. I've been wanting to do it my way my whole life. I know what you want of me. And I've always felt like it's been too much. I've always felt like that for whatever reason I've had, that it's just not going to fit my life. It just wasn't for me. And you refuse to obey year after year, over and over again, refuse to obey. But this is where God wants your desperation to take you to the point of obedience. To say, God, that which I've refused to do, that which I put off doing, 
That which I've known for years, but just said, no, I don't think so. Not right for me. I'll just skip that part. Now I'm ready to do it. And he obeys. He goes down through Jordan River, takes off his armor, takes off his garments. And now his leprosy is exposed to all his guys. Walks into the river, dips down seven times, comes up the seventh time. Skins like that as a young boy. He meets God in that place. Changes his life. But you know what thrills Naaman? You know what gets him excited? You would think it'd be he's healed of leprosy, but that's not what got him excited. What got him excited is that he has had an encounter with the one true living God. That's what he walks away rejoicing in. That's what changed his life from then on. Because now he's discovered there's a God. There is a real God. He discovers God and what he's like in ways he never dreamed possible. All of a sudden, he has an encounter with the one true living God. That's what he goes away excited about. Sort of like when Peter is, is out there fishing and, and he catches a boatload of fish. He doesn't get excited about the boatload of fish. What, what gets his attention is he's in the same boat as God. He's overcome by that. Desperation wants to bring you to the point of surrender and obedience. Surrender and obedience. All right, three things I want you to take away from this today. Desperation, this is number one. Desperation is a gift that nobody wants but that all of us need. We're willing to, to humble ourselves, to, to pray and confess, to get rid of all the distractions that would get in the way of us being desperate for God. Because here's the truth. What we hope is that we can have revival without having to be too desperate about it. We want to experience it in a very undesperate way. We want things to sort of stay the same. We don't have, want to have to be broken. We don't want to have to, to, to do that time where we go, okay, God, the stuff in my life, Lord, we need, I'm desperate. We have to deal with this, the stuff in our culture. The Christians who have given reason for the world to blaspheme our God and to mock our God. No, we, we don't want to go that far. We want revival in a very undesperate way. So it's a gift. Desperation is a gift that nobody wants, that all of us need. The second thing, desperate people aren't too worried about what other people think. They don't care about appearances. People who are really desperate. Jairus is a great example of this. Remember, he's that synagogue ruler and his, his daughter is sick unto death. And so he finds Jesus and he gets down and begs Jesus, come and heal my daughter. I know you can do it. I've heard how you've healed all these people. Come and heal my daughter. This is a synagogue ruler that other people are supposed to go to for help. Now he's going to Jesus for help. This is synagogue ruler where that whole system is sort of holding Jesus' arm length. In fact, questioning him at every point. In fact, wanting to silence him. 
But when it comes to his own daughter, all that's out the window. I don't care if my daughter gets, as long as my daughter gets healed. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care anymore what those other rulers might think of him, what all the religious elite may think of him. Desperate people don't care much what other people think. The third thing, we are in a desperate situation, but we don't realize it. Back a few years ago, there was a wildfire in California. I know it seems like they have fires all the time, and they do. Uh, at least they make the news all the time. Our fires, we burn like the whole state half the state of California. Nobody even hears about it up here. But anyway, so they have fires in California. But in this fire they had a couple of years ago, over two dozen people lost their lives. Sergeant Conrad Grayson was in charge of the evacuation. And he was interviewed after this by the USA Today. And here's what he said. He said, I would go around these houses begging people to leave but they wouldn't take me seriously. They would say, okay, we'll get some things packed in a while, then, then you know, we might leave, or, or I've got this couple of these good water hoses out back, and if you've seen this thing, you can do it with the water hose, you know, you put your thumb on the end of it, and it squirts out a little thing like this, and, and, and that's what I'm going to try. Or they would just think it happened to other people. They lost their lives, their homes, but it won't happen to us. So he talks about how he goes around begging people to leave, but they just don't take him seriously. And so a lot of those people became charcoal briquettes. Their lives were lost. And I can understand his dilemma. He can't walk in a house and pick them up and put them in and force them to leave. But he's saying, look, ash is falling from the sky. There's smoke all around. You can't wait till your favorite show is over. You can't wait till you get your car packed with all your precious belongings. You need to leave and you need to do something about it right now. I can identify with that. Because right now in our culture, ash is falling from the sky. There's smoke building all around us. We are experiencing the passive wrath of God. And we want to say, oh, I'll do all right. I got an industrial strength water hose and I can put my thumb on the end of that. It's going to squirt something out and I'll be just fine. No. We need that gift of desperation. What I'm saying is put down the water hose. Humble yourself. Cry out to God. Be willing to come to that point where you're ready to surrender and obey. Then you can see God come into your life, our lives, in ways you never dreamed possible. You can see the, the wall being rebuilt. You can see the lives of people being rebuilt. But it doesn't happen as long as we refuse to be broken over the sin in our own lives, in our culture. As long as we're saying, okay, yeah, Randy, I agree with you, but eh, it's not really time to be that desperate about it. It's not really time just to jump in the car and go. We can hang in there for a little while longer. We're okay. 
that's not what the times that we're in call for. So I'll ask you again what I asked at the very beginning. When was the last time you mourned and were broken over the sins in your own life, in our culture, and how we as Christians have given reason for our world to mock God? When was the last time? It's time to realize that we need to be desperate. We need to do what Hannah did to get up. In other words, we need to try something different. We need to try doing this God's way. We need to bring us to the point where we're ready to surrender and say, God, I'm not asking for me. I'm asking for you. Your glory is what I long for. For your name to be lifted up. And so everybody in our nation knows, reveres, and fears your name. God, for you. Not for me, for you. To come to that point of surrender. To come to that point of obedience. Okay, God, I know what you've been wanting from me for years. And I just refuse to do it. But no more. I'm ready to simply do it your way. Are you there? If not, would you pray that you get there? Do you feel the situation is desperate enough to demand prayer and fasting? If not, I'm not sure what it's going to take. Maybe, maybe, I just don't see things the way you see. Maybe I just see things differently because of the position or whatever that I'm in. But I'm thinking this is all to be so clear. Everybody should be able to see it. How can you not see what's going on in our culture and direction it's going? And how can you say, oh, that's so bad, but we're so good inside these four walls of the church? It doesn't work that way. You can't have one without the other. They go together. So look, the ash is falling. The clouds of smoke are all around us. We are currently experiencing the passive wrath of God on us. And we have a choice. What we're going to do. What we're going to do. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.